0: Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti.
1: Sepsis is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in hospitalized patients and is the most expensive disease to treat in hospitals across the United States. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign has been working on improving outcomes for patients with sepsis for well over a decade. Today, we are fortunate to have one of its leaders as a guest to discuss the 2018 update, the, the Hour One Bundle. Our guest is Dr. Mitchell Levy, Professor of Medicine and Division Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Alpert Medical School of Brown University. Dr. Levy is also the Medical Director of the MICU at Rhode Island Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. Dr. Levy is a world-class investigator, clinician, and teacher. He's a past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine a master of the College of Critical Care Medicine, and currently is a member of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Executive Committee and is a Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines author. Dr. Levy has published an impressive number of original studies within the field of critical care, including studies in ARDS, ethics, and sepsis. Most recently, Dr. Levy published the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Bundle 2018 update, which will be the topic of our conversation today. Mitchell, welcome to Critical Matters.
0: Thanks, Sergio, and it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the invitation.
1: Absolutely. So I would like to start for our our listeners who may be new to critical care or those of whom may be living under a rock, if you could tell us a little bit about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and its history.
0: I'd be happy to. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign has, um, I think it's a remarkable example in medicine of an initiative that really has been based uh, uh, on grassroots. That is that there were over, uh, started, it, uh, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign started in 2002. Uh, it was a sponsorship between the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and at that time, the International Sepsis Forum. Over time, the uh, International Sepsis Forum dropped off and it was just the two critical care societies. So in 2002, we all came together with a a group of uh, sepsis experts and committed to a 25% reduction uh, in mortality over a five-year period globally and the development of uh, evidence-based guidelines. And so over the next ten years It took us a little longer than five years but over the next ten years we have now produced four iterations of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines which have become the gold standard for management of sepsis across the globe Uh, we developed the sepsis the initial sepsis bundles in partnership with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement the IHI which is probably the premier quality a improvement institute uh, in the United States founded by Don Berwick and we partnered to develop the sepsis bundles uh, which we implemented starting in 2005 and then published uh, two separate publications in 2010 and then again in 2015 which demonstrated over a seven and a half year period a 25% reduction relative risk reduction in sepsis mortality mortality associated with uh, increasing compliance with the sepsis bundle. And it was out of that, out of those data, and by the way, there are now over 60 manuscripts in the peer-reviewed literature using the sepsis bundles or some variation of our bundles that have demonstrated an associated reduction in mortality with improved compliance with these bundles and it was all of that that led to the initiatives out of New York State and now uh, the UK and the US looking at using bundles to improve outcomes in sepsis so overall I think uh, and I should say that the surviving sepsis campaign implementation phase uh, was on three continents In Europe, North America, and Latin America, and involved over 225 hospitals. And as I said at the beginning, one of the things that most impressed me is the amount of academic institutions was relatively small in the campaign. It was an unfunded initiative in which clinicians stepped up and decided that they could do better at managing patients with sepsis, and they wanted to do the right thing, and they made it They were committed, even without funding, to taking part in the campaign and changing care for the better for these patients who are critically ill with severe sepsis and septic shock.
1: No, and I think that um, from the perspective of a practicing clinician, I think tremendous uh, utility and good has been done with not only providing these uh, several iterations of the guidelines, but also just bringing sepsis to the forefront of our discussion, not only among clinicians, but among different specialties and, and the lay public. And I think for a disease that kills and affects so many of our patients, that was something that clearly was lacking 15 years ago.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I, I do feel that one of the things that I take most pride in on behalf of the campaign is that you could say that we put sepsis on the map. Um, when we started and you asked um, participants uh, in any given talk how many of you uh, have a sepsis initiative in your hospital or your hospital network, there would be very few hands raised. And now, any talk you give, There is almost no one who doesn't raise their hand because sepsis initiatives, hospital-wide sepsis initiatives, are so omnipresent right now.
1: And I think that one of the the aspects that has always fascinated me about sepsis, Mitchell, is that obviously it's it's a syndrome. And uh, our knowledge about it, like everything in medicine, but I think particularly in sepsis, is very fluid. So this is not by any means things that are set in stone. And like the, you mentioned, the first iteration of the bundles included things at 24 hours that we don't do maybe today. But even then, it showed that improving compliance with a set of standards does drive performance and does improve mortality. And that continues to evolve. And I, I guess we're going to hear the latest evolution of the bundles a little bit later.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, Sergio, and I think worth uh, one worth emphasizing. There has been a lot of controversy, as we all know. With the r- rapid adoption of some of the initiatives that we have, for which we advocated in the uh, in the surviving sepsis campaign, and um, many of the trials that looked positive initially later turned out to be negative but I think that's very important. they were negative they never demonstrated any evidence of the harm, so our advocate uh, the- The fact that we advocated for rapid adoption of research uh, to the bedside, I think, turned out to be accurate in that when we had to drop things from the bundle, like steroids or even Drotokogen-Alpha, it was because the subsequent trials were found to be negative, not that they caused harm. And That's very important as we move forward in the future that we're comfortable advocating for adoption of research while at the same time acknowledging that we have to be flexible and be prepared to change.
1: Absolutely, so one of the things that we talk about in our group um, in the, within the concept we call the lean ICU is flexible regimentation. Being regimented in terms of having a standard, and by that we don't mean a cookbook, but basically these are the four or three essential elements that every patient with this disease must get, or every process in the ICU must must have, but then be very flexible that you're operating on best available evidence. So when there's better evidence that might indicate that we should do something different, you have to be able to change. That's exactly right. So let's talk about two, two topics that I think are often confused and uh, might be source of some controversy among clinicians, but I really think it's important to just defining uh, and differentiating what they mean in relation to the surviving Sepsis campaign. The first one is sepsis definitions. As I mentioned earlier, it's a syndrome. When you say this patient looks septic, I think it might mean something different for an ED physician, for an ICU physician, for a chart abstractor. But but also with recent publications of sepsis three definitions, I think there's a lot of people who are still confused. Any comments you can make on that on that front, Mitchell?
0: Yes, uh, the, the SEP3, sepsis three definition has we. First of all, I should say that uh, the committee uh, that determined the definitions, the consensus group, was, although it was from the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and the Society of Critical Care Medicine and a host of other supporting critical care societies, it was completely separate from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. So although we adopted, for the last iteration of the campaign guidelines, the sepsis three definitions, The campaign itself really uh, was not involved in any official way. Some of us who are, of course, involved in both. Myself, for instance, is on the executive and steering committee of the surviving sepsis campaign and was on the task force for the new definition, but they're really separate entities. Um, More importantly, our attempt at clarification with the sepsis-3 definitions, in many ways, you could say backfired. And you, you actually alluded to it, although I think unwittingly. So for years, two two iterations, in fact, from 1991 and then again in 2001, the definitions were sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. And as we all know, severe sepsis was infection, evidence of inflammation, and organ dysfunction. But the truth is, and therefore sepsis was only evidence of infection and inflammation, but the truth is clinicians, just as you said, Sergio, when they thought someone was getting sicker, they said, oh, Mrs. Jones looks like she's getting septic. They never, we never said, Mrs. Jones looks like she's getting severely septic. And so The vernacular if you will at the bedside was sepsis was bad but in fact for the definition sepsis was not bad sepsis just was the body's inflammatory response to infection not necessarily bad it didn't become bad until organ dysfunction became manifest and therefore you a patient met the criteria for severe sepsis in the sepsis 3 group we felt that we, it was really time to align the consensus definitions that were in use with the way we as clinicians, clinicians use them at the bedside. That is, when someone has a simple pneumonia without organ dysfunction, we say this patient has pneumonia. If you send someone home from your office or even the emergency department without organ dysfunction. But with a, quote, walking pneumonia, close quote, you don't say this patient was septic. But when someone then develops severe ARDS or renal failure or hypotension because of their pneumonia, we say that patient's now septic and we admit them. So that's exactly what the change was with the new sepsis-3 definitions. We went from sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock, to what we all felt on the task force was a more Accurate way in which we all use it, which is infection that is UTI or pneumonia sepsis which is pneumonia and evidence of organ dysfunction and then of course septic shock So I still feel that change in definition was the right way to go The problem is of course for coding especially in the United States the coding now in the US does not match the new definitions and therefore the uptake of the new definitions nationally have been very slow in the United States.
1: And I think it, it, it causes a lot of confusion with uh, providers that are not necessarily in the ICU, but are nurses and abstractors, because what it does ultimately is it lumps a whole bunch of patients who just have uncomplicated infections within these categories that we're trying to target and creates these big denominators that make our metrics look bad, but also make the mortality probably look better than it should. And I think that without definitions, just to to clarify, Mitchell, moving forward, when we talk about the bundles, we're really talking about applying them to patients who have a suspected or documented infection with acute organ failure or who have progressed to a state of shock. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct.
0: And you're 100% right. We wound up causing much more confusion than help. And that's why... In the United States certainly for New York State and at the federal government level they have not they have specifically not adopted the sepsis three definitions so that the coding can be clear and clinicians can be clear and as you said most importantly about the appropriate denominator because when you add the old sepsis term which is no organ dysfunction when you add those patients and their mortality rate to the denominator of patients with organ dysfunction, everybody's mortality rate looks better.
1: So the other topic that I wanted to ask you about was the CEP one CMS bundles, which obviously are regulatory in every hospital that I know of is working and to some extent struggling with. Can you just make the distinction between that and this writing sepsis campaign bundle and recommendations?
0: Yes, and this is very important. Now, um, because... The two bundles have been conflated, not just in the mind of the public, but a lot of the controversy now that has been directed in the literature towards the Surviving Sepsis Campaign conflates the SEP1 bundle with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign bundle. Having said that, there's no question, and I take pride in this, that the data from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign that demonstrated association between improved survival And the surviving sepsis campaign bundles are what drove the New York state government and the federal government to develop their own bundle so that they could drive uh, change in clinical behavior to be more consistent with evidence-based practice. But the SEP1 bundle is purely a CMS measure. Now, a lot of the individual elements are similar to what we developed in the surviving sepsis campaign. However, the way of identifying the uh, patients, the time zero that they use in SEP1 are very different than the surviving sepsis campaign. And the SEP1 bundle is not the surviving sepsis campaign bundle.
1: So let's dive into the bundles now. And uh, I guess we could start by defining for everybody, just to make sure we're on the same page, what is a bundle?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Sergio. The bundles bundle concept was really developed by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and the first bundles that were <clears throat> in use with IHI were the ventilator-associated pneumonia bundle <clears throat> and the central line-associated bloodstream infection bundle, the Clapsy bundle. And it was and many of that work was, as we know, done by Peter Pronovost when he worked. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and people like Terry Klemmer from uh, Latter day Saints and uh, uh, Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City and Roger Resar who worked with IHI were really pioneers in developing bundles. The idea of a bundle is you take, you define a set of interventions that are evidence based and founded on recent literature and you that are not being adopted widely at the bedside currently. And the key to a bundle is that they're grouped together in time and easy to measure. So any element like, let's say, blood cultures should be able to be easily chart-abstracted and answered yes or no. Lactate, was it measured or not? If so, what was it? And so easy to measure, yes, no is one important Key to a bundle. And the second is that they're grouped in time uh, closely. So, in other words, if you did a bundle where you measured it every Tuesday and Thursday of the second week in a month, clearly that's going to be a very difficult bundle to monitor and measure. But therefore, many of the bundles are what happens in the first three hours, what happens in the first six hours, what happens in the first 24 hours. So, easy to measure and grouped together in an easily identifiable time period are the two key aspects of bundle technology that makes it work.
1: So, Mitchell, do bundles make a difference in patient outcomes?
0: That's a great question, Sergio, and one that I'm amazed that we still ask in 2018. I understand that for many years, the detractors of quality improvement and in particular of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Repeatedly would say well. There's no evidence that bundles work. I I think I think one has to acknowledge uh, Doing a review in the literature and by the way there are several Published meta-analyses now as I said earlier in this podcast there are over over 60 Manuscripts in the peer-reviewed literature that demonstrate an association between improved compliance and decrease mortality with the use of sepsis bundles and it's by the way not just sepsis bundles but even if we just stick with the sepsis bundles <clears throat> we've published two manuscripts uh, one with 15,000 and the other with a total of 30,000 patients in critical care medicine and intensive care medicine showing a statistically significant increase over time in compliance that was associated with statistically significant decrease in mortality we published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine Chris Seymour was the lead author uh, a demonstration of the time to completion of the three-hour bundle was uh, every hour delay in the completion of the six-hour bundle was associated with about a five percent increase in the odds ratio of mortality and that was in almost 70,000 patients. So for me, uh, I think we have to put to rest this question of do bundles work in the face of this overwhelming amount of data in the literature that demonstrate a clear association between compliance and decreased mortality for using the sepsis bundles.
1: And I think it's very important also in terms of distinguishing between some refer as cookbook medicine and implementing a bundle with some key elements that all we're saying is every patient should get this within this time frame, And all that happens after that really is very complex and is going to depend on the clinician and each individual patient. But it's just assuring the basis of what we think is critical in terms of, we'll talk about the elements in a second, for every patient. Is that correct?
0: I think that's exactly right. And I, I think... I hear the objections quite frequently that this removes the art of medicine and inhibits our ability to teach young clinicians to trust their understanding of their own patient population, and I appreciate that. At the same time, as we all know, medicine has gotten so complex, and our lives as caregivers has become so busy that it becomes easy, honestly, to just simply Uh, Lose track of what we're doing at the bedside and forget to do the right thing. So there are the literature is uh, clear that prompts electronic medical record prompts change uh, care for the better and and so does quality improvement using uh, standardized care. So I, I feel that I understand the feelings of loss of autonomy and what that brings to a lot of physicians. And at the same time, if my relative comes in the hospital, I want to know that, that he or she is being treated uh, with standardized approach to care.
1: Yeah. And I think that it also speaks, uh, Mitchell, to basic human behavior. What we say we will do and what we do are always two different things, no matter what the topic is, how I treat a septic patient, or when I will start my diet to lose some weight. It's exactly the same. And I think that we need to find ways to overcome that inertia, overcome those heuristics and all those biases that we have in human behavior to really make sure that our patients do the best they can.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good point. We published a number of pieces uh, as part of the campaign with the difference between what we think we do at the bedside and what we do do at the bedside, and I think we all experience this. We leave as an attending physician with a patient on a certain settings, let's say, ventilator settings in ARDS, and we come in in the morning, and you realize that for the last 12 hours, their care has not at all been consistent what we would like to think is the best care possible for these folks. Absolutely.
1: So let's talk about the, the hour one bundle. And I guess uh, words do matter. I did notice that it's called the hour one bundle as opposed to the one hour bundle, which would be what I think most people would think about it. But I suspect there's an important difference there. Can you expl- explain that?
0: Uh, yeah. Yes. And I'm, re- I'm really happy you asked this because it is a lot, one of the common misunderstandings from the publication uh, last month. And what we tried to do is not dissimilar. To what I described, we tried to do with the new sepsis redefinition, sepsis free. And that is, we remember we originally had six and 24 hour bundles. <clears throat> and then we had three and six hour bundles. And we, as the, and by the way, the bundles for the surviving sepsis campaign <clears throat> come from the evidence based guidelines. And they're developed by a different panel than the guideline panel. They're developed by the surviving Sepsis Campaign Steering Committee, which is made up of a group of experts from the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and the Society of Critical Care Medicine in the U.S. So we, we felt when you think about it and you have a critically ill patient with sepsis, and that's in the new definition, so someone with organ dysfunction and or septic shock, we don't wait for three or six hours to give them fluids, to give them vasopressors, To give them antibiotics in fact when we see a patient in the emergency department on the wards or in the intensive care unit and we say this patient septic we don't we don't go through these things sequentially we do them all together we order blood cultures we order antibiotics we start fluids and honestly if their mean arterial pressure is low enough while we're giving the fluids we start vasopressors so the idea is Not that all of these things should be completed within an hour. Of course, we have the aspiration that you'll administer the antibiotics within an hour, but we never intended that two liters, let's say two liters 30cc per kilogram of fluid administration would be completed within an hour. The idea behind hour one is as soon as you see this patient, but certainly within the hour that you see a patient, all these things should be started immediately. And I don't think this is revolutionary. And it's interesting to me that there's so much controversy around it because, in fact, I think that's the way we practice, which is you see someone and you treat them right away.
1: And I think that's an important distinction because I I do think that right now in the current environment, a lot of people um, are measuring when the fluids are done, when the antibiotics are completed, and what you're really saying here is in the first hour of recognizing a patient with sepsis, which we have defined as somebody who has an infection, either suspected or documented, and acute organ failure, we should initiate these therapies. And I think that's really the, the directive.
0: I think that's exactly right. Now, there's also controversy about uh, when recognized. In the emergency department, traditionally, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has advocated for a time zero of triage time in the ED. On the wards and in the intensive care unit, it is through chart abstraction, <clears throat> and it is when recognized. And I think a lot of the objection in the, from my ED colleagues is well-founded, because I think there's a fear that they will be held to a one-hour antibiotic administration after, within one hour of triage. And honestly, I think any of us If our loved ones came in to the emergency department, we would like to think that that might be true. So that's why we call it aspirational. The the hour one bundle, there's no intention that it's going to be adopted by uh, CMS in the United States. We're seeing it as aspirational to get antibiotics started within an hour and completed as quickly as possible.
1: And I think it speaks very um, strongly to what happens um, with mindsets, and there's a lot of literature on fixed mindsets, which are very prevalent in physicians, and growth mindsets, but I guess the the quote that would summarize the intent from what I'm understanding, Mitchell, is that to become is better than being, and what we're trying to do is not attain perfection, but just improve what we're doing for our patients.
0: I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right, and honestly, I think that Uh, the experience of the surviving sepsis campaign, the data that's emerged, support that assertion.
1: So if I have a patient that I recognize as having a new infection and I recognize has acute organ failure, within that first hour, what should I do? What are the elements of hour one bundle?
0: I think that when you see a patient and you think that they have sepsis or septic shock, you should immediately get a blood culture and uh, order a pain of lactate, you should immediately order a broad-spectrum antibiotic, and if they're hypotensive uh, or their lactate comes back that quickly, you should start 20, 30 ccs per kilogram, and then ultimately, we measure the lactate at a time interval that of your whatever you ha- your
1: local protocol is. And if the blood pressure does not respond to fluids or, like you mentioned earlier, if it's still very low while well, I'm giving fluids, early administration of vasopressors to protect the MAP, exactly. Is
0: so let's exactly, start. and I think that's. A, Go ahead. And let sorry. me just clarify because I think this is very important. Again, I think that um, if someone's not serious, uh, not severely hypotensive, and their mean arterial pressure is in the sixty range, I would start the fluids right away. But I might wait on vasopressors. But again, I don't think any of us, is faced with a patient whose MAP is forty-five or fifty or. Uh, we wouldn't just start fluids and wait to see how they responded. We would start vasopressors and administer fluids at the same time.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's worth, I mean, reemphasizing that this hour one bundle applies to patients who have infection or suspected infection with acute organ failure and not to anybody who has a uncomplicated infection. Because so I think that some people do talk about this, but if you came in with, unrelated symptoms, and they find out you have a UTI, you do not need to do all these things. And I think that's a big distinction. And I also think, right. Mitchell, that it'd be worth exploring each one of these a little bit more before we wrap up. So let's talk about the lactate. What is, what, what's the number that you should worry about? What are the triggers, and when should we remeasure it, and why?
0: Yes. So
1: um, we kept...
0: I, I think... Any lactate above your hospital laboratory's normal limits, which is usually 2.0 millimoles per liter, identifies a patient at higher risk. Uh, we recently changed the definition of septic shock uh, in February of 2016 to a lactate greater than 2.0. Uh, for the bundle, we kept a lactate greater than 4.0 because we felt it identified a patient population that was at higher risk for death. And we felt comfortable, especially because that's been the lactate level we've used up until now at keeping it at 4.0.
1: So I think that's an important distinction. And I think the other thing that I would like you to comment on before we leave lactate behind is, uh, I see that a lot of clinicians um, have a hard time differentiating lactate as a diagnostic tool versus lactate as a risk assessment or prognosticator tool in terms that if you don't have infection, the lactate does not make you have sepsis. Can you explain that a little bit better?
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm laughing only because uh, you know as well as I do that we field an enormous amount of calls from uh, clinicians who want to admit their patients to the intensive care unit because they have, quote, sepsis, close quote, as identified by a lactate. And I think it's really important to understand Uh, obviously lactate is metabolized to the liver so anyone with chronic liver disease or liver dysfunction is going to have a chronically elevated lactate and be slow to clear an elevated lactate people with seizures obviously will have an elevated lactate there are a whole host of people with asthma can have a chronically uh, can have an acutely elevated lactate from an acute uh, asthmatic attack so There are a number of reasons apart from sepsis that can lead to elevated lactate. And so it's very important for clinicians to understand that you start with a patient who you believe might have an infection, and then we obtain a lactate to determine whether this patient is either at higher risk or has evidence of severe hypoperfusion and therefore would benefit from fluid administration independent of hypotension.
1: Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about, I think with the, with the blood cultures, it's self-evident. It itself in an age of resistance, if we can't deescalate later, it, it's really difficult to manage antibiotics. And I think most people have, have no problem doing that. But let's talk about the antibiotics. What are your thoughts on antibiotics in terms of why we should give it early, how you would approach it? And also, you can comment a little bit of what you do as a clinician at 48 hours or later With your broad spectrum antibiotics?
0: Yes, Sergio, this is also an important question. I, as I said about bundles, I feel the same way about early antibiotics. I think now there are enough data in the literature and Vinnie Liu from uh, Kaiser Permanente Northern California just published a really great manuscript in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. We've published some Work out of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, and obviously, Anand Kumar published some of the original data, all of which pointed at the fact, towards the fact, that for every hour delay in the administration of appropriate broad-spectrum antibiotics, the odds ratio of mortality increases. Originally, the data were in only septic shock patients. Now they're in patients with severe sepsis or sepsis and septic shock. And I think the data are convincing to give antibiotics. I think what's important to remember is that uh, in this era of antibiotic resistance, it's important to marry early uh, antibiotic administration with antibiotic stewardship. And therefore, we should be administering antibiotics right away and then reevaluating right away whether or not the patient really is infected. So I always say to the house staff, start antibiotics right away. And then in the morning, let's reevaluate whether we think that patient really does have pneumonia or if it's simply congestive heart failure. And I feel if you marry de-escalation to rapid administration, I think that's the best combination for treating patients with suspected sepsis.
1: Yeah. And I think again, we're emphasizing that this rapid administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics only applies to patients who are sick, acute organ failure, inf- suspected infection. Maybe shock. It's not for everybody who who comes to, to the hospital that you're sending home in terms of of other diagnosis. What about That's the factor? What about the fluids? Just tell, tell, tell us a little bit about that. I hear a lot of controversy that we're flooding patients, that we're, doing, that we're harming patients. People quote uh, studies that are unrelated to adults uh, with sepsis. But uh, what is your take on, on fluids and what we should be doing in these patients?
0: Yes, uh, the, the amount of fluids and fluid administration is probably one of the areas which is filled with the most emotion of all the things we've ever done in a campaign. And you're you're right, Sergio, the data, uh, first of all, I have to acknowledge, there are no good randomized controlled data that show any amount of fluids are good. In the same way, by the way, that there are no good randomized controlled data that antibiotics make a difference. It's not something that is gonna be subjected to a randomized controlled trial soon. And the data that people use to refute The administration of 30 cc's per kilogram are often unrelated trials in children or in under-resourced environments that really don't apply to the way in which we were using the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. I think there are a couple of things. First of all, I want to remind us 30 cc's per kilogram in a 70 kilogram person, that's two liters. That's not a lot of fluid. And I think that for most intensivists, by the time we see these folks and come up from the emergency department, they've already received at least two liters of fluid. So we're not, we're not talking about an enormous amount of fluid. That's one. Two, in the recent early goal-directed therapy trials, process, promise, and arise, before randomization, the median amount of fluid received in each of those trials was close to or above 30 cc per kilogram. Those are the data that we used in the last 2016 campaign guidelines for reasserting the value of 30 cc per kilogram since it seems to have become the standard of care. And finally, there are, are several randomized control trials now underway that are addressing this question of what's an adequate amount of fluid. But in the meanwhile, I think the data in the literature support the fact that it is safe, even in patients, and this is, these are data from, again, Vinnie Liu from the Northern California College of Permanente, published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, in which he showed that in patients with, immediate, with a uh, moderate lactate elevation, two to three, the populations that seem to do the best with those patients with end-stage renal disease who are dialysis-dependent, and patients with congestive heart failure. So the data, there are no data in the literature, prospective data, that demonstrate harm in those two patient populations. And so the only data available in the literature support the use of 30 cc's per kilogram. There's a lot of emotion. There are a lot of emotional pieces written out there about the evils of fluid overload but until there are better data out there, to me, you, we, will, we will save more lives through adequate fluid resuscitation than by withholding fluids.
1: And I think that a part of the discussion, I think, that becomes muddled is that we're talking about what to do in the first hours. There's no question that for some time... We have, min- we have may gone overboard at 24, 36, 48 hours with the amount of fluids, but that's another topic and I think another challenge in terms of when people are in persistent shock, how to best manage them, but that's not what we're recommending with these bundles, correct?
0: I think that's so important. All of the, uh, Most of the data that looks at total fluid balance are looking at 72 and 96 hours, and by the way, the median amount of fluids that were received in the three large early goal-directed therapy trials were close to eight liters in 72 hours. That's a totally different conversation than what we're talking about in immediate fluid resuscitation, which is in the two-liter range. And yet, because of the emotion around all of this, we conflate the eight, ten liters of fluids that patients receive with a positive fluid balance at the end of uh, admission with The administration of two liters of fluid within the first um, resuscitation period in sepsis.
1: Absolutely. So finally, the the fifth element of the bundle is vasopressors. And uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier how you would approach it, but can you just recap on how you would approach a patient with severe sepsis, septic shock, uh, in the first hours in terms of vasopressors?
0: Yes, of course. So two important points. One, I think that there's general agreement now, especially because of the French trial and some other data, that a mean arterial pressure target of 65 millimeters of mercury is more than adequate, and there's no reason to push the mean arterial arterial pressure higher than 65 millimeters of mercury. And so that's the first thing that targeting a map of 65 is appropriate. The second piece, and I think this is important, is if you have someone who you're seeing in front of you whether it's in the emergency department on the wards or in the ICU and I think this is how we all practice <clears throat> if they have severely low blood pressure life threateningly low now what is that definition it's hard to say but someone whose pressure is in the 40s or 50s not even map it's a systolic pressure in the 40s 50s 60s <clears throat> or a map in the 50s that patient should be started on vasopressors immediately and Uh, fluid resuscitation, and then after the 20-30 cc's per kilogram, if you can wean the pressors rapidly, of course I would do so, but I wouldn't wait until fluid administration is administered before starting vasopressor therapy in the face of a life-threateningly low blood pressure.
1: And I think that obviously the, the timing of vasopressor is always a great challenge, and when we talk about it theoretically, it's sequential to after fluid, But like you mentioned, in reality, I think the best guide is our patient, and if the blood pressure is very low, like you mentioned, we probably should be doing both at the same time with the intention of weaning off as soon as possible as they respond to fluids. Right, exactly. So I think that to to recap and to summarize, the hour one bundle really recommends that we take the appropriate steps to treat patients who have an infection or suspected infection, with acute organ failure, or those who might be in a state of shock. And there's five elements to this hour one bundle that include measuring a lactate, obtaining blood cultures, starting broad-spectrum antibiotics, administering IV fluids, 30 cc per kilogram uh, for those who are hypotensive or have a lactate over four, and in those patients who are still hypotensive or don't respond initially to start the vasopressors as soon as possible. Is that correct?
0: Mitchell? I agree. I, absolutely. And I would add the, to remeasure lactate as, as part of the management strategy for the resuscitation.
1: Excellent. So this has been, I think, a very uh, insightful conversation. I think it'd be of great value for our clinicians. But one of the things that we also like to do at Critical Matters, Mitchell, is to tap into the wisdom of our of our guest and talk about some other topics that whether they're related to the practice of critical care medicine in life might not be related specifically to sepsis and the the hour one bundle. Would that be okay? Yes, it is. So the first question is what book or books have influenced you the most or what book have you gifted most often to others?
0: Uh, There are so many, but uh, for me clearly, the book that uh, has had the most impact for me and the one that I recommend the most is a book called The Sacred Path of the Warrior, and it's written by a Tibetan gentleman, uh, C.P. Mukpo, M-U-K-P-O, and that's the book. In fact, I just saw one of my physician colleagues today who I recommended that book strongly to.
1: So we will definitely put that in the show notes and encourage our, our, our listeners to pick it up. The second question, Mitchell, is, what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe:
0: Well, I'm not sure I would say that this is something that most people other, uh, that uh, don't believe, but I, I think we create the light, life we lead. and I think that if we if we reside in cynicism and skepticism, then we will lead a cynical, skeptical life and be met with that. If we lead a life that believes in the goodness of other people and trusts the um, profound goodness that is inherent in the human spirit, that's the kind of life we will lead, and that's the kind of environment we'll have around us. So we create the life that, uh, that we lead by the way we live.
1: And I think that that's a, a great point. I'm a big uh, fan of uh, the Stoic philosophy. And Marcos Aurelius was one that would often say that our life or our, our thoughts are our life. So what we think and what we, we, we act depends on that is ultimately how we live. And I think it, it really speaks to that as well. Yeah, that's right. The final question, um, Mitchell, as we close would be, what would you want every intensivist or every person who listens to this podcast to know?
0: Yeah, I like this question. Actually, all three were very... Uh, I think the most important thing and something that I talk with my fellows about is the essential importance of collaboration in intensive care. The quality, of, the quality of care that patients receive, the quality of the environment in the intensive care unit, and the quality of life for the clinicians in the intensive care unit is really based on our ability to collaborate together. And, and that's something that I have used to build uh, intensive care units wherever I've gone and done that collaboratively with my nursing and respiratory and partners. And I feel that's the most important thing for intensivists to remember.
1: And I think it's it's not only important for intensive, we're probably for, for all of us in society these days. And perhaps the greatest enemy to collaboration is ego, which seems to be prevalent among our colleagues and in other sectors as well. So I think that those are very good words of advice, Mitchell, to finish. It was a great pleasure to have you on Critical Matters. I really enjoyed it's an honor our, to be here. Enjoyed our conversation and hope to have you back soon to talk about sepsis, or or many other topics. Thank you very much for your time and for sharing your knowledge with us.
0: Thanks, Sergio. Pleasure to be here. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes
1: or Google Play.